0: We've done six sermons in the book of Isaiah uh, that have covered 12 chapters. Um, This sermon covers chapters 13 to 27 of Isaiah. So buckle your seatbelts. What was I thinking? Anyway, let's pray that this would be a really uh, good time this morning. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that as we engage with what you speak to us in Isaiah, that we would come to love and serve the Lord Jesus better. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, there's a piece of proverbial wisdom out there that at dinnertime conversation, you should never raise the subjects of politics or religion, right? Full aware of this? Yes. I, 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 have you done it and got smacked down? I don't know. Um, I'm going to talk about both of those subjects this morning. So prepare for a sermon full of really bad dinnertime etiquette, basically. Um, God has a lot to say about politics. He has a lot to say about nations, and chapters 13 to 27 of Isaiah are all about nations. Um, as, as Christians these days, we, um, we often just think in terms of individuals. Um, it's, uh, there's reasons for that. How do you become a Christian? Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an individual thing. You, you yourself need to trust Jesus to have your sins forgiven. It's an individual thing. So there's a reason we talk about individuals more than bigger groups like tribes or nations. However, God's got a lot of things to say about tribes and nations. He's got a word to say to the nation of Australia. He's got a word to say to every nation. It's what we see over and over again in chapters 13 to, uh, to 23 of Isaiah. Sometimes Christians only think in terms of individuals. And so you think, well, I'm a Christian. It doesn't have anything to do with national policy. I don't have a word as a Christian for the moral fiber of our nation. I can't call our leaders to justice and righteousness, those kinds of things. I think in this part of the Bible we learn that actually we can, that God does care about those things, and that as Christians we should have concern for those things. We should care about where Australia is heading and what God has to say to Australia. Now, as, as we get into the book, you'll see these words. Um, each, each of the... the there's a prophecies against a bunch of nations around Israel, basically. Um, and you keep seeing this, a prophecy against Tyre. That's how it's written in your Bible. Another way you can translate that is um, the burden of Tyre. Um, There's a reason they've translated it that way, but think about it for a sec. If you see the heading, it's a prophecy about a place, starts with a prophecy against Tyre. What do you think follows? What what, what do you expect to follow? A whole lot of bad stuff, right? (laughs) It's pretty clear. It's entirely negative. But if you actually read the prophecy against Tyre, and especially some other places, you find it isn't entirely negative at all. And so the burden of Tyre might be kind of a more accurate way to think about it. God has a burden with nations, have you ever thought of how frustrating human rebellion must be to God? He created a world and cultures and people to love one another under his rule. Diversity is a good thing. But every nation turns away and expresses their rebellion in all sorts of different ways. Nations go to war with each other. Self-serving cultures uh, d- develop at the expense of other cultures. We develop systems of a trade that exploit poorer nations. Nations enshrine immorality in their laws. Incredibly frustrating to God. God has a burden with the nations. He's going to bring judgment on the nations, and he also wants to bring salvation to the nations too. Now, Isaiah 13 to 27 is pretty long. Um, There's a logic running through it, though, I want you to understand. So what I'm basically going to do is, um, for the next short while, I'm going to take you for a tour through the forest, right? And then we're going to go back, and we're going to look at three of the trees, you follow me? So, 13 to 27 is the forest. Take a wander through the forest. See the layout of the land of chapters 13 to 27, and then we'll go back and look at a couple of details that are really important. Um, as you read chapter 13 to 27, a map will help a lot because it talks about a bunch of places. Um, this is the kingdom of Israel, this is the kingdom of Judah. Uh, Isaiah is prophesying to Judah about other nations. Now, in Isaiah's time, the thing that everybody cared about was this nation up here called Assyria. And that's the city of Nineveh. Um, Assyria was the world-dominant power. They were conquering everything, and every single nation had the same problem. How the heck are you going to handle Assyria? They are a big worry. And so that was the biggest question for foreign policy everybody had, basically. And so Isaiah 13 to 23 goes through all these nations, goes through Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus. We'll see them go by. Cush down here, Egypt. Egypt and Cush are kind of closely related at the time. Arabia, Jerusalem... The city at the center of uh, Judah and Tyre goes through all of these nations and basically it's concerned for each of them about how you're going to deal with the Assyrians. God's got a word to say to each of these nations about how they refuse to trust God. He's got a burden for them, for their sin, their deserving of judgment, their present refusal to trust the living God. And God's people, Jerusalem, are one of those rebellious nations. It's very, very sad. The reason we should care about these kind of obscure words to these foreign nations is what I was always doing is painting these pictures of these words to the nations as a lead up to the final judgment of the whole world. Chapters 13 to 23 are kind of expressions of God's judgment as Assyria conquers nations in the present and they either, conf- they either trust him or they don't trust him in light of the coming judgment and the coming calamity. But then in chapter 24, it shifts. Uh, that's basically the structure of what we're looking at. Isaiah 13 to 23, burdens of the nations for the nations. 24 to 27, it shifts to applying that big scale to the end of the world. God's judgment for the world. God's saving people out of the world into his new creation. And so turn with me to chapter 24. And you see how these words about judgment to come and and, 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 and nations and um, this sort of thing comes to head at the ultimate expression of God's judgment with the end of the world. Listen to chapter 24, 1 to 3. It says, "See, the Lord is going to lay waste to the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest, for the people, the master, the servant, the mistress for, as for her servant, seller as for the buyer, the borrower as for the lender, the debtor as well as the creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. That's what Assyria was doing at the time. They were laying waste cities. They were totally plundering nations. It's an illustration of what's going to happen at the end of time. Is is it what Isaiah is saying?" And so people need to turn to him. Have a look at um, verse 4, and it tells you why. The earth dries up and withers. The earth- world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is, here's the reason, defiled by its people. They've disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. What it's saying is, in ancient Israel had this agreement, this covenant with God. If they followed him and followed his laws, he would bless them. If they disobeyed, they would be cursed and be rejected from the land. He's saying that applies to the whole earth at the end of time. At the end of time, God will call all people to account for how they've lived in his world. And they'll either be thrown out of it, cursed, or they'll be blessed and invited into the eternal new creation. And so that happens. It's not all just negative. Come to chapter 25, and we hear about the positive side of it. Chapter 25, verse 6. And he's the other side of what's going on. God judges evil and removes evil from his creation. Chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest wines. On this mountain, he'll destroy the shroud that involves all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will, I love this, he will swallow up death forever. The Lord, the sovereign Lord, will wipe away tears from all faces. He'll remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. God will remove death forever. He'll swallow it up, take it away. There'll be a feast. It's it's a favorite way of talking about heaven. God will host this banquet and people will feast at God's dining table and there'll be no more mourning and there'll be no more guilt and there'll be no more disgrace. And it's put away forever. And how do you get to be part of that? It's verse nine. Chapter 25, verse nine. It says, In this day they'll say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And so at the end of time, there's judgment and there's salvation. And those who trust in God, trust in the Lord Jesus, get salvation. Isaiah is saying, all these nations you're seeing at the moment, having this, this difficulty with Assyria, and Assyria is going to conquer them, that's what it's about. It's this illustration of what's going to happen at the end of time. Now, that's, that's basically... The shape of the forest, okay? Um, uh, God's concerned for all nations. Uh, we should too. What that means is um, it is not okay to go through life knowing God's plans for the world and for the nations and just live like an isolated individual. It's not okay to go through just concerned about my tiny corner of existence as if the rest of the world doesn't, doesn't exist. Because it does exist, and God's concerned about it, and we should be too. Jesus commanded his disciples, go into all the nations telling people about the Lord Jesus, making disciples of all nations. We should be concerned about people of all nations. Now, I'm going to go through and have a look at at, at some of the bits, some of the trees in Isaiah 13 to 23, some of the individual words he has to say about these nations. It's worth noting straight away, though, there's lots of emotion involved the whole way through. Isaiah is passionate about what he's preaching about. He's got a passionate concern for the nations. And so what these chapters teach us, I think, is that we need to develop a heart for certain things. I'll tell you what those three things are now, so you're not not taken by surprise. Um, The things we're going to have a look at, we need to develop a heart as Christians for world mission, that all people would come to know the Lord Jesus, all nations. We need to develop a heart for our invincible nation, invincible, inverted commas, a nation that's convinced it's invincible. We need to develop a heart for the refugee in need. They're three things we're going to have a look at. Turn turn please to um, Isaiah chapter 19, which is the one that uh, Jeff read for us just a moment ago. It's a prophecy uh, God speaks about Egypt. As Jeff read it, um, I'm not going to go through all of it because it's it's, it's long, but basically you read it and it talks about how God's bringing judgment on Egypt for their sin. And uh, if you know the book of Exodus, where God frees Israel by bringing judgment on the Egyptians, it sounds like the same thing's happening again. But then in verse 18, it completely shifts. Chapter 19, it really help to have a Bible if you've got one there. Have a look at chapter 19, verse 18. Completely shifts, and listen to what it says. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the City of the Sun. Uh, in that day, there'll be an altar to the Lord at the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. Egypt's been converted Verse 20, It'll be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their impressors, he'll send them a saviour and defender, and he'll rescue them. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and they'll acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings they'll make vows to the Lord and keep them. What's going on? Egypt has become Israel. The people of Egypt have turned to the religion of Israel and devotion to their God. And if you know the Old Testament, you, you, you notice some of the ways it's, it, it's described there. They called out for a savior and defender. The book of Judges is happening for Egypt. They're doing um, offerings and sacrifices and grain offerings. They're doing Levitical priestly offerings like, like in the Book of Leviticus. They've become Israelites. They've turned for salvation to the God of Israel. It's kind of a bit like our McDonald's chains pop up all over the world, just the same thing, it looks the same wherever, has a slightly different menu, but it's the same thing. It's the same flavour everywhere. It's kind of that kind of picture. You've got Israel's religion, knowing the true and living God, popping up in Egypt and other places as well. And the last bit is absolutely extraordinary. This picture at the end of time, have a look at uh, verse 25. It says, The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Egypt and Assyria, these arch enemies, are now at peace with each other, and they're both God's special possession, just like Israel. There's people of all nations becoming God's special people in the future, under the rule of the Lord Jesus. Now, that might seem more confusing. You're asked, when's that going to happen? When's Jesus going to do that? Well, it happens when He returns to bring His kingdom. But here's the basic point that Isaiah's making. Um, have you ever heard the saying that um, there is a God-shaped hole in every human heart? Have you heard that? What this is saying is, there is a Jesus-shaped hole in every political system and every society in the world. There is a Jesus-shaped hole in every society and political system in the world and in the history of the world. Every political system needs Jesus at the centre of it to be fixed. That's what the end of the world looks like. And so one of the things that should absolutely captivate us, the thought that should captivate our imaginations and our hearts, is having a vision for a world that is entirely devoted to the Lord Jesus. We should long to see knowledge of Jesus flood every nation in the here and now. I've got a friend who, uh, a month ago, uh, probably three weeks ago, left for Berlin on mission. Why Berlin? Because they need Bible believing Christians there to tell people about the Lord Jesus. He's got four boys. They're fighting for visas right now, they're fighting for rent accommodation right now. It's real hard where they are. They have a vision to see the Lord Jesus be known in Berlin. That's what is talking about. There is a Jesus-shaped hole in every political system, and every nation needs to know him. And one day, there'll be people of every nation who, it'll be very clear in God's kingdom, do. We need to develop a heart for world mission. Second thing, we need to develop a heart for our invincible nation. Turn to chapter 23. The one we're going to think about for this is a place called Tyre. We didn't read this. Um, Tyre was a, um, the wealthy nation of Isaiah's day. Reading about them made me think of Australia in more than one or two ways. Uh, it, it just struck me, this is Australia, <laughs> apart from a few details. They're very similar in a lot of ways, though. Chapter 23, verse 1. The prophecy against Tyre, burden for Tyre, however you want to say it. Whale, your ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed and left without house or harbour from the house of uh, Cyprus, word has come to them. So there's this warning of doom to come. Have a look at verse 6. Cross over to Tarshish, while you people of the island. Is this your city of revelry, the old, old city, whose feet have taken uh, her to settle in far off lands? Who planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are renowned in the earth? The Lord Almighty planned it to bring down her pride in all her splendor, and to humble all uh, who are renowned on the earth. Friends, Australia is one of the wealthiest nations in the world. As a result, a great many Australians, most Australians, I suppose, have a lot of confidence that we can succeed in achieving a really good lifestyle for ourselves in this country. We're proud of it. We think we can do it on our own. We can stand at our own two feet and do life and do it well and succeed and be rich and be affluent. Australia is also one of the really difficult places to tell people about Jesus and see some response. It's a really difficult place for people to take Jesus, to consider the claims of Jesus in a serious way. And those two points are closely related. You see, we're so confident in our wealth. We're so confident that we can do it ourselves. We have so much pride because of our wealth that we don't have a felt need to consider things like that. I remember doing evangelism outside the cathedral at Sydney and... um, There's people of all different nations there, and you can tell the people who live in Australia because their eyes glaze over when you want to talk to them about this stuff. They don't want to consider it. People who have just come from other countries, they take you seriously. I had not barely experienced this. They take you seriously, I need to consider this. And they may reject it, they may accept it, but they take it seriously, they think about it. We have so much pride that we can't take Jesus seriously. And I'm sure many of you who have tried to talk to your friends about Jesus know what I'm talking about. Friends, uh, sometimes in life, I think you see a level of pride that's so huge and so massively self-deceived that there are only one of two responses you can have to it. You can laugh or you can cry. It's just so massive that there's no in-between response. Let me tell you an example of one that you're going to laugh at. who knows who this man is? I know a couple of you do. Kanye West, do we know Kanye West? I don't know any of his songs, but he's one of the uh, biggest-selling music artists of all time. I couldn't name one of his songs, I'm sorry. Uh, he's married to Tim, uh, to Tim, to Kim Kardashian, that's worth something. Sold six, uh, 21 million albums, 66 million digital album downloads. Um, he's also one of the most arrogant and prideful men that I've ever heard of. <laughs> Unbelievable, the stuff that this guy does and says. Unbelievable. Um, he's made a habit of getting up at award shows, but some of you know what I'm talking about, and correcting the judges when they got wrong who should have won the award. He gets up on stage, grabs the microphone and says, this person should have won. Very, very ag- arrogant, prideful man. But that's nothing compared to how the man talks about himself. It's actually a website you can go to called the Kanye West Self-Confidence Generator. It says, no one loves Kanye more than Kanye. Channel your inner Yesus and become your own biggest fan with these self-loving quotes. And you click this button and it says, Give me more Kanye confidence. Sorry, Kanye-fidence. You click, Give me more Kanye-fidence. It'll come up with a quote from Kanye West to help you feel good about yourself. Internalize this. So let's just go through some. My greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. These are real quotes. I have like nuclear power, like a superhero, like Cyclops when he puts his glasses on. I'm like a vessel and God's chosen me to be the voice and the connector. I'm so credible and so influential and so relevant that I will change things. Kind of makes Muhammad Ali seem humble, doesn't he? Just extraordinary. For me to say I wasn't a genius, I would be lying to you and to myself. This is just a small sample, folks. Go to the website. I it think it's crazy. When I think of competition, it's like I try to create against the past. I think of Michelangelo and Picasso, you know, the pyramids. Oh, my goodness. Everything I'm not may be everything I am. In my humble opinion, that's a prophetic statement. Gandhi would have said something like that. Here's my all-time favourite, though. The Bible has 20, 30, 40, 50 characters in it. You don't think I would be one of those characters of today's modern Bible? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the, the combination of self-confidence and pride with complete ignorance is astonishing, isn't it? It's, uh, you wonder who's putting on, but apparently he didn't seem to give me more Kanye-fidence, go to the website. Sorry? Don't need more Kanye-fidence, go to the website if you need more Kanye. Yeah, well, it's, it's fake. You, you, you look at it and you go, serious question, how long do you think Kanye's Kanye-fidence would last if he lost his ability to perform, his wealth, and his celebrity wife? And that's the moment when you realise that his pride isn't funny anymore. It's absolutely tragic. Absolutely tragic. You should pity the man despite his wealth. And Australia is full of Kanye-fidence. What do you think Australian wealth looks like from God's perspective? Well, probably similar to how the ancient wealth of Tyre looks to us. I've never considered being jealous of the people of Tyre. They are a long time ago and their wealth is gone. And now they're either in God's kingdom or they're out of it. And I don't envy them. I, I, I don't even think about them. That it's just kanye kind of confidence It's fake. <laughs> the pride of Tyre should break our hearts. It's no fluke that chapter 23, Tyre, is just before chapter 24 where God judges the world. Tyre, that's Sydney, that's Oran Park, that's Australia. That's why we need to persevere telling people about the Lord Jesus here. Because it's just kanye kind of confidence It's fake. And they need Christ. And God plans to bring down the pride of our nation. Third one, the refugee in need. Please turn to chapter 15. And I think this was the first reading we had. Another prideful nation was Moab. Moab was the... Uh, I think, oh, good, I've got it on the slide. Uh, there's Moab, I've just circled it for you. You can see how close they are to Judah. In 715 BC, Moab made the worst miscalculation they ever made. They thought they could take on Assyria. And they did, and they lost very, very, very badly. Moab was another very prideful nation. Isaiah talks about it in verse... uh, I'm in the wrong chapter here. My goodness, I really am in the wrong chapter. What am I doing here? Ah, good. Chapter 16, verse 6. Uh, It says, We've heard of Moab's pride. How great is her arrogance of her conceit, her pride and her insolence, and her boasts are empty. You see, Moab was another prideful nation. They were full of kanye but they had had their kanye stripped away by Assyria. And so there's this picture in chapter 15 of grief spreading through Moab as they're conquered and just helpless, and the soldiers weep and the people weep and people die and people flee and they shave their beards off in in grief. And it's just, you don't need to know the geography. It's just town to town to town, grief spreads through Moab. Their kanye has been stripped away and all they can do is mourn and run away. It's worth noting that Moab is not a nation that Israel liked. They weren't that likable to Israel. They were full of pride, and they were kind of a pain in the neck. But have a look at what Uzziah's heart for them is. Verse 15, verse 5. My heart cries out over Moab. Ref- refugees flee. As far as Zohar, as far as Egleth, Shalishia... Six, uh, again in chapter uh, sixteen, eleven, my heart laments for Moab like a harp, my inmost being for Haraseth. There is no one upmanship, one upmanship here from a man who could have had a lot of one upmanship at this moment. There's just compassion for those who need it. They were used to be a bunch of arrogant jerks, Moab but Compassion refuses that to hold that over them. Now they're in need. Now, the Moabites are now refugees. <laughs> refugees are the most vulnerable people in the world. They have no home. They have no army or police to protect them. They have nowhere to look for justice or help that they can reliably count on. And a lot of people are out to get them. They'll probably die. That's what it was for Moab. But Isaiah's um, vision here, his prophecy, he sees a day when Moab, Moabites will turn up after this to Jerusalem seeking help. Have a look at chapter 16, verse 3. The refugees come. Verse verse 3, it says, Make up your mind, Moab says. Render a decision. Make your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the refugees. Do not betray the refugees. Let the Moabite refugees stay with you. Be their shelter from the destroyer. They want a speedy answer. Are you going to shelter us or do we press on? Please shelter us from the destroyer, from Assyria. The answer, like a lot of answers in Isaiah, isn't straightforward. It's not straightforward, but it's better. It's better than could be expected. Have a look at chapter 16, verse, uh, verse 4, at what the answer is. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse like halfway through verse 4. Chapter 4, uh, 16, verse 4b. <laughs> it says, "...the impressor will come to an end, the destruction will cease, the aggressor will vanish from the land." In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it. One from the house of David, one who in judging sends justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. Isaiah gets talking about the last days again. Last week, we talked about the Lord Jesus, how he was the great king who would one day rule the world and bring worldwide justice and peace and righteousness and harmony between all people. Here, the Moabite refugees turn up to Jerusalem looking for exactly those things. And so... The answer is, we are waiting for a king like that, who will bring that to the earth. Friends, when we deal with people in need, there are two answers we must give, two responses we must give, and both are compulsory. You can't choose. Both are compulsory. The first one is, these people need Jesus. They need the great king who will establish righteousness in his kingdom. They need to know that king and hope in him and be part of that kingdom. The second one is, these people need help and refuge in the present. They need somewhere safe to settle, they need somewhere to live and work, they need somewhere to raise their family, and it's our responsibility to get it for them, as much as we're able. How do I know that? Well, he doesn't come back to how Israel actually responded to the, to the Moabite refugees. But listen, read the book of Isaiah. Over and over and over again, Isaiah has been calling on God's people to seek justice and righteousness, because they are waiting for the king of righteousness and justice, which means bringing harmony to the world. You can't say, here's my secure world, my personal faith in God, and I'm very devoted to God in this little space over here, and that's your problem way over there. That isn't compatible with Christianity. You can't call yourself a Christian if you don't respond with compassion to those in need. Seeking their justice, seeking righteousness for them, seeking harmony in the world for their sake. Now, friends, we need to think about asylum seekers in Australia because it's a big issue. I'm going to talk about it. I know it's controversial. It's exactly why I need to talk about it. Um, it's an issue that's been horribly misrepresented for years now um, and such that the Australian community has become incredibly calloused towards asylum seekers, incredibly calloused. How we approach as Christians in Australia? Well, real quick, Romans 13 tells us to honour our rulers. We're in a democratic country, part of honouring our rulers means participating in politics. I can talk about this at length, I'm not going to because we have other things to talk about, but part of being in a democratic country and honouring our authorities is exercising our right to vote, petition, engage in public discussion and urge politicians to lead justly because that's their job. And friends, Australia has betrayed the refugees. First, Australian policy has been dominated by an absolutely irrational ass- obsession with stopping the boat. It's a completely ridiculous policy for lots of reasons. First of all, boat people aren't the problem. Plain people are. People who arrive by plane are in greater numbers and they're far more likely to not be genuine refugees and to overstay visas. They, their method travels far safer. Their method of travel was actually far cheaper coming on a plane. In contrast, over the last 20 years, 90% of asylum seekers arriving by boat have ultimately been assessed to be legitimate refugees. Or why'd they come on boat then? Why did they come on boat? People who arrived on boat came from countries where they can't get travel documents, where it's impossible to get a visa, practically impossible. They'll get shot. They come from places like Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, Iran and Iraq. They come through Malaysia and Indonesia to get here that's very expensive and very, very dangerous. Typically, they have spent their entire family savings to do it. Can you imagine, many of you have spent a large amount of money on a house, right? Here's what these people are doing. They're taking all of that money that you spent on a house to pay for one member of their family to come to Australia in the desperate hope that when they get here, they'll be given asylum, refugee status, and their family can follow them later. Those are desperate people. Why don't they stay in Indonesia? Well, because they'll get locked up, there's no, not the same human rights stuff there, and they'll probably have to wait 10 to 20 years, during which time your kids can't go to school and you can't get a job. Second, Australian policy has made absolutely no difference to stopping the boats. It has not made absolutely no difference to how many people are seeking asyl- asylum in Australia. The difference has been how many people worldwide are seeking asylum. In 2013, the no advantage policy made no difference to numbers of refugees. There was a bigger number coming. Why? Because that year there were 1.1 million extra refugees in the world because of world events. It doesn't matter what policies we have. And besides which, most refugees remain in the region they originated from, meaning the countries who have to deal with refugees the most are the ones next door to them. There are presently 45 million forcibly displaced people in the world today, 15.4 million are refugees, and up to a million are seeking asylum. In that world, it is laughable to say that Australia has a refugee crisis. Absolutely laughable. Third thing I want to say, and we're going to have to go a little bit into detail here. Over time, Australia's policies have gradually become horribly unjust towards refugees, and public discussion related to that has gradually demonised refugees in the eyes and asylum seekers in the eyes of the Australian public. Um, I just got to give you a quick rundown of this. Um, in 1951. <laughs> There was the United Nations Refugee Convention. A refugee under that convention, Australia signed up to this, a refugee under that convention is a person with a well founded fear of persecution in their uh, country of origin. Under that convention, here's a key point seeking asylum is not illegal, regardless of how you get into the country in which you ask for it, regardless of how you arrive. Boat people seeking asylum is not illegal. In fact, Australia is actually obligated to protect them and fairly assess their claims. But since 1950, well, more, far more recently than that, Australia has taken step by step to undermine our commitment to that convention, even though technically we hold to it. So in 1989, mandatory detention for asylum seekers came in. Initially, you could hold them for 48 hours, but gradually, time limit was just removed and you just leave them locked up, treated like criminals. 1995 to 96... They redefined the refugee intake numbers. This is technical, but it's so important. This is the problem, one of the big problems. The number of people that Australia would take in from other nations technically remained at 12,000 people a year. However, they redefined the terms. Families were once one application. Now each individual was applying uh, for one place each. But then the worst thing happened. In '96, Australia became the only nation in the world to link its offshore and onshore programs. What that means is... Previously, the 12,000 people coming in was from offshore programs, coming into Australia, replying coming into Australia, didn't include people who arrived by boat seeking uh, asylum. Now, it included people who arrived by boat and were successful applicants. They were added to the number, which means there's a new concept that Australians talk about and get angry about, which is queue jumping, because Australian policy created queues. It becomes a concept, and now people are demonised for it. Now we talk about legitimate refugees, which are the people who got in line, and illegitimate refugees or illegals who ride by boat, but actually they're not illegal and they are legitimate because we've signed the UN Convention. And this nonsense about getting in line and queue jumping. There is no queue. Take a number, 1 to 15 million. There is no queue. That is not how it works. The fact that they can't get in a queue is what makes them refugees. What makes them legit asylum seekers. Sorry, I'm confusing my terms there. In 2004, there was indefinite detention of asylum seekers came in. Now detainees can just be held. Uh, they have no access to judicial review. They just wait. And most shocking of all, in 2013, Australian mainland was excised from the immigration zone. My understanding of is what that means is if you arrive by boat in Australia without a visa, technically you haven't arrived in Australia because it doesn't exist as an immigration zone. So you've arrived in Australia, but you can't apply for asylum because you technically haven't arrived in Australia yet. And so we're signed up to the Refugee Convention, but it's meaningless because Australia has implemented unjust laws that undermine the Refugee Convention. It doesn't mean anything anymore. I could go on about Amnesty International and UNHCR reporting about the inhumane conditions in Naira and places like that. Uh, I'll just read one statement. Uh, In in 2013, UN uh, Human Rights Commission uh, found Australia to be in breach of its obligations under international law. They found that we've committed 143 human rights violations by indefinitely detaining 46 refugees for four years. And there's recorded cases of Australia deporting people back to places like, like Afghanistan, where they were then killed, because they were real refugees. They had legit claims. But these people aren't statistics. I read a book this week that was pretty horrifying. It's called The Undesirables. Uh, Mark Isaacs uh, worked at Nairu for nine months, and he got to know these people. He got to love these men, and he heard their stories, and they were scary stories. (laughs) And at the time of writing the book, he's like, they're still waiting. They've been waiting for a year and a half. Their families back home think they've left them, abandoned them, failed them in their duty as a husband of a father, perhaps gone off to some other man. They've just been left waiting. And he recounts the ways in which these men broke down psychologically and physically in, in, in the conditions of Nauru and places like that. One of the most psychologically devastating factors has been that they just don't know how long they'll be there. It's completely indefinite. It's like being in prison, prison except you don't know how long you're in for. And I'm reminded about the Moabite refugees saying to Israel, Israel, make up your mind, render a decision, just tell us what's going on. I'm not saying refugee processing is a bad thing. I'm saying it needs to be fair and it needs to be quick. Locking people in detention for months or giving no indication of how long it will be is just immoral and it's tremendously psychologically harmful. At present, there are 1,023 men locked up in Manus Island. There's 802 people locked up in Nairu, including 119 children. There are 123 children held in other detention centres in Australia. The 1994 UN Convention on the Rights of the Child states very clearly that children are to, who are asylum seekers are to be treated as if they are accepted refugees because they are tr- children. So once again, Australia is in clear violation of our human rights commitments and agreements. <laughs> Friends, this is our country. <laughs> what are we going to do about it? I just, this, is, this is gut-wrenching, isn't it? The first response is compassion. <laughs> Jesus teaches to love our neighbour, especially our neighbour in need. You might ask me, look, theoretical question, Matt, how would you deal with it if you were in charge? Call me naive, but I'd let them in. (laughs) God gave us the world to share. I don't have the right to toss somebody out into the ocean because I bought it off my land and said, this is my land now. Living aside the hypocrisy of Australia doing that when the way our nation was founded was stealing it from other people. The world is out to share. And Isaiah has been saying, justice, righteousness, let's see legal procedures that are just and righteous and treat other people in a way that helps them participate in society and enjoy God's good creation. But I'm not in charge, Uh, so let's talk about how we can make a difference. I'll I'll give you a few points of application before we finish. Friends, the first thing we need is a heart of compassion for refugees. As I said, my heart cries out for Moab. Our hearts should cry out for the people of Nairu. Our hearts should cry out for anyone desperate enough to get on a leaky boat and risk travelling through Indonesia to get here. They are desperate people. Second thing we should do is think about how we talk. In conversation, we need to stand up for the rights of asylum seekers. We mustn't tolerate people in our presence demonising them unfairly makes a big difference how people talk about it. Third thing I want to say is we need to pray. We need to pray for our government to implement merciful and just uh, procedures in this area. We need to pray, secondly, for God to raise up more Christian leaders in this area. I I, Talking to a friend this week about issues like this, he's an Anglican minister, and we're just realising, I can't champion this in my position. I don't have the time. This sort of thing takes over your life. Um, and it should. There should be people for whom this is their life, championing these causes. We need to pray for God to raise up people like that to lead ministry in this area because it's a good, just cause to take over your life and be devoted to. Let's pray for people like that. Friends, we also need to sign petitions. part of being in a democracy. We need to write letters to our government, to our local member, say we we hardly disapprove of the injustice of the way people are being treated in our name, in our country, or out of our country because we won't let them in. There's a good uh, petition I'll I'll post on the Facebook page later. Lastly, we need to take action ourselves. We can't urge others to act if we aren't acting ourselves. The Love Makes a Way campaign is really good. There's the Simple Love campaign where we donate uh, food and supplies to uh, people uh, in Sydney and and, and around places, asylum seekers, who are in the process of getting processed. And um, they aren't in these offshore places. But we can support those who are near us. Now, I don't know how you'll respond to my tirade, <laughs> if it is that. We have a God who loves justice and righteousness, and we live in a country that has just undermined that for refugees who are asking for our help. I hope you can see that. I hope you'll be moved. I hope your heart will be stirred like Isaiah's was for world mission, for our invincible nation, and for refugees that need our help. How about I pray for us? Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, that he is the King of righteousness and justice. We pray that you would give us hearts that break for those who are in desperate circumstances. We pray that we would have a heart for world mission and seeing people come to know Jesus and salvation in his name. We pray that you would uh, give us a heart that would break for our nation and people whose eyes are so blinded by money and pride that they won't turn to Jesus, please have mercy on many of them and in Oran Park that they would turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. Please undermine their Kanye-fidence before it's too late. (laughs) And finally, Father, we want to pray for our nation that in the next months, and we pray not years, months, we would see a turnaround in the perception and policies of our nation towards those in need, asylum seekers, And that our nation would have compassion and a concern for justice for them. And that would apply itself in real ways that would help them. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.